Well, we are back for another opportunity to look at Romans. We're in Romans chapter 2, verse 25. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders at church in the square, and we get to open up God's Word together. This for the 23rd week in this great book. So meet me in Romans chapter 2, verse 25. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, first books of the New Testament. You'll hit Acts, and then you'll get to Romans. If you get to 1 and 2 Corinthians, go back to the left. Or as always, just type in Romans 2, 25. And as we come to this particular verse, God's wrath has truly been this overshadowing presence, has it not, in our study ever since Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And that's where Paul, the writer of Romans, says, says this. He's, he's our teacher. He's the one that is helping us to understand the things of God through this letter written to the early church in Rome. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven uh, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul is writing to both Jews and Gentiles, so that's the chosen people of God, Israel, as well as every other nation, about salvation. And more specifically, he's writing to them about avoiding wrath or or not facing the wrath of God. First, he addresses the sins of those who have lived lawlessly. Think about sins that are committed overtly or, or obviously. They are suppressing the truth of God, Paul says. However, Paul also confronts, perhaps to our shock, and certainly to the shock of his first Jewish readers, he, he confronts the religious and the moralistic sinner who boasts in having and knowing the truth of God. So, so one is convicted for their sin for suppressing or ignoring the truth, and other is convicted of their sin and, and, and faces the wrath of God because they are boasting in the knowledge of God or the truth of God that they no. And so about the irreligious or, or the lawless, Paul tells us that, that God gave them up. He gave them over to their sin and wrath waits for them in the day of the Lord that Paul wrote about in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And about the religious or the legalistic, Paul tells us that their hearts are hard and that God's wrath is being stored up for them. They are guilty, he says, of judgmentalism, hypocrisy, and arrogance. And you remember, we looked at that pretty overtly last week. Now, and I, either way, regardless of your story, regardless of how you have come to this particular book of the Bible, have you noticed Romans gives you no wiggle room? No wiggle room, one way or the other. So if you were wiling out in high school and college, sleeping around, smoking, drinking, doing whatever you wanted, disobeying your parents, doing whatever came to your invisible inclinations and never repented, Paul is saying that God's judgment was and is likely still upon your life. And conversely, if in your teens and 20s and 30s and beyond, you had a spiritual high, you started Bible studies on campus. You enjoyed legal substances with incredible moderation, and you served the homeless. You did everything your parents told you to do even before they asked. You graduated with no debt and high honors and looked down on the mere mortals around you, but you never loved the Lord. See, Paul is saying to either of us and to both of us that God's judgment was and likely is still upon you without repentance and without love for the Lord. So what Paul has told us up until this point, I hope that you have been tracking with this. It's devastating. What Paul has been communicating is devastating. What Paul is telling us 
should at some measure make us incredibly uncomfortable when we are alone with our thoughts or when we hear this word proclaimed. See, if you have been completely at peace during this whole series and you've thought to yourself, wow, this has really been encouraging. Everything about this is is perfectly warm and fuzzy and I I like this. I want some more of that. You, You haven't been listening or perhaps I haven't been preaching it well enough, but hear this. Paul is essentially saying church in the square, you can be a member of this church or any local church and still not be a Christian. You, you can watch every live stream. You could have been one of those few people that were waiting to get in before 10, right? Before it even went live. You can be gathering with the church every single Sunday and not be saved. You could never miss a group time, a Zoom call, and not be a follower of Jesus. You could serve, you could give, even pray, and remain underneath the wrath of God. This is how shattering this text should be to us. So I want to make this plain. I desperately want to make sure that we get this because eternity hangs in the balance for us. If you did not grow up in the church, you are without excuse and outside of Christ, God's wrath is waiting for you. If you grew up in the church, you are without excuse and outside of Christ, God's wrath is waiting for you. Neither has a direct bearing upon your soul. Paul is telling us rather that salvation and human flourishing is not about your religious exposure or experience. It's about obedience at the level of the heart. That's why he says in Romans 2, 6, that God will render to each according to his works, not his church attendance, Not his biblical knowledge, not his parents' salvation story, not the church you went to growing up, not the church you're raising your kids up in now, none of that, but your heart surrendered and in love with Jesus. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, God is determined to strip you of anything and everything that would keep your heart from him. He does this one of two ways, either by taking an idol or that idol from you and allowing you, or rather allowing you to see the fullest expression of your idol's power. He will either take your idols or he'll let you have them to their fullest power, their fullest potential, and you'll realize something at the end. Let's think about money. If we center our lives on money, God will either take your money away so that you don't, you're not dependent upon it and yet you're forced to look to him or he'll let you get wealthy beyond your wildest imagination and find out that your wealth cannot satisfy you. That money will not fulfill you. He will take that idol away at one point or another because something like money never loves you back. No idol ever does. See, when our hearts are, hearts are wrapped up in idolatry, We don't love God rightly. We can't. We cannot serve two masters, Jesus tells us. And this dishonors God and it harms us, idolatry does. So it is God's grace, in fact, that he strips money or any idol away from us so that we will stop loving and trusting them. See, today we need to to face something. We need to face our harmful affections. We need to face our false loves. We need to face the things to which we give our hearts which are not deserving of our love. See, we love the wrong things. 
We are sentimental towards feeble traditions. We are beholden to impotent earthly sentimentalism and traditions like our favorite song or ministry or baptism or certain doctrines or even the Bible itself. See, in legalism or in lawlessness, we, the spiritual or even the secular, have turned gifts from God into gods themselves. And for the Jew, in Paul's context, in his original Roman audience here in Romans chapter 2, that gift turned to God was circumcision. And this is what, where we'll pick up the text in Romans chapter 2, verse 25. Hear this, the very words of God. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Let's pray. God, help us. Help us to come to this text and, and even right now be ready. Oh God, would we be ready to lay down idols, to admit them, to confess our allegiance to broken ideas, to bad doctrine to false loves, to impotent powers of this world. May we not be worried that something is about to be taken from us that is too precious. May we be rejoicing that the preciousness of our God, of our Lord Jesus, is ours through the great work of Jesus on the cross. And so, Father, may we with open hands come to this text. I, I pray for myself, Father, even as I preach, would you expose things in me? that I hold on too tightly, that I love too much, that I love wrongly, that I love in place of you. I pray that for myself. I pray that for my sisters. I pray that for my brothers. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So once again, God is determined to strip from you anything and everything that you could love and trust more than him. And I want this to settle in. Let this idea settle in that God is determined to strip away anything and everything you could love and trust more than him. I'm going to be saying this over and over and over again today because I, I desire, I, I pray, and I believe that God would have us hear this from the text. He's determined to strip these things away for our good. It's a grace of his. And to help us sort of understand that, let's consider a few characters from scripture and what they lost or what God took from them. Adam and Eve lost the garden. Moses first loses his governmental authority in Egypt, and then he loses the promised land. Jonah lost comfort and his will to do as he pleased. Job, among a host of other things, lost his wealth. David lost a son. Tamar lost communal respect. Paul lost notoriety and control. Some of these losses are, are not God's judgment for sin, but some are. Some losses are protections and some are consequences. Both, though, are expressions of God's grace for his people and toward his people. If, see, if to love and trust anything more than God leads to harm, then it is grace to have those things taken away from us. And they do. They do harm us. Idols harm us. False loves hurt us and the people around us. Relying upon and hoping in or trusting in and loving something within God's creation more than the creator who made it and gave it to you is a death sentence, the scriptures teach us. And so in some measure, with, without these utter and devastating losses, these men and women from, from history, and now we, as we share in those kinds of losses, 
can't obey God rightly without losing those things. This is what God is telling us through these stories and through our own experiences, that we can't love God rightly and love our idols. We don't obey God and obey our idols. Professor Rosaria Butterfield explains in her fantastic book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, about the nature of idolatry and how devastating it is. See, we cannot, she says, will ourselves into deep obedience that God requires. We can't obey until we ourselves have received this grace and picked up our crosses. We can't obey until we have laid down our life with all our faults and worldly identities and idols. We can't obey until we face the facts. The gospel comes in exchange for the life we once loved. Therefore, God takes from us so that we might love and trust and obey him, not idols, which never love us back. What Paul has been doing in Romans chapter 2 is, is slowly but, but surely explaining how God has taken and is even in the midst of taking things from his Jewish people. First, God takes away their self-centered religious assurance. You see, their, their moral purity had become so central to their identity and their, their own moral story and their belief that, that they were special before God. So Paul tells them that their righteousness is actually self-seeking and it's not righteousness at all. Not only that, but God strips away their self-made righteousness. So not only their religious assurance, but their, their righteousness, their exclusive relationship with Yahweh was so central to them, but it was that Yahweh was their God, not that Yahweh was God. So Paul tells them they're not special. We've had to hear that as well during this series, that no no matter our ethnic heritage, no matter our religious upbringing, we are not special. God shows no partiality. Thirdly, God strips away their exclusivity, that the law was something they they loved too much. They, They loved and trusted way too much, that they had this gift of God's word outside of relationship with God. So Paul tells them that they are boasting in a law, but they're breaking it. So their love is actually hypocritical. So God strips away the law as their assurance and their exclusivity of salvation with God. So in the same way then that these major characters like like Tamar and David and Paul and, and Adam and Eve experienced gracious losses, so God is taking from the Jewish people for their good, from religious people for their good. Why? Because God is determined to strip away from us anything and everything that we could love and trust more than him. Circumcision was the Jews' last line of defense. So as all of these idols are falling in Romans chapter 2, Paul has essentially saved circumcision, the thing that is most central and most valuable, most precious to the Jewish people. He has saved that for last. For the Jew, nothing was more central to their ethnic identity and their spiritual blessedness than their circumcision. So consider again Paul's words, Romans chapter 2, verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Remember, Paul is specifically addressing his Jewish audience in this particular portion of the passage. Uh, for whom circumcision was a primary identifying marker of their their spiritual story. In many ways, it might be like your baptism. It might be like that that special moment that you confessed your sin or that special moment that you had that spiritual high. Think about the thing that is most valuable to me in the expression, to you rather, in this expression of your faith. 
take take that multiply it at infinitum. Like this is an incredibly central idea for the Jewish people. Specifically, Paul has made clear that the Jewish people are not saved from the wrath of God because they are Jewish, not because they have the law, not because they have this exclusive relationship with Yahweh, not because they know right from wrong. And now Paul is saving this greatest marker for last of their assurance, right? Their circumcision. Circumcision was actually older than the law and marked the very beginning of Israel. Their story, their, 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 their origin story is found along with circumcision, with this marker. Therefore, its, its value was unmatched in the Jewish mind and heart. In Genesis 17, God speaks to a man named Abram, whom he calls and commissions to be the father of a multitude of nations, specifically instituting the nation of Israel through him. So meet me in Genesis chapter 17, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 17. Go all the way to the left if you get to the table of contents or the place where you log births and deaths, then go back to the right. Uh, Genesis chapter 17. This is where God calls Abram and, and, and brings about this people called Israel, the Jewish people, God's people. Genesis 17, verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or, or bought with your money from uh, any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any circumcision, verse 14 says, or rather any circumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So the covenant of God was ratified through this mark of circumcision. Now, covenant is a promise, a promise between two different parties or two different peoples, and, it, and it's sealed by something. Think about a couple who in their marital promises and their, their covenant of marriage seal those vows with a ceremony, with a kiss, with words, but perhaps most vividly with rings. Here in the case of Genesis chapter 17 and the covenant between God and his people, the promise between Yahweh and Israel is to be sealed with circumcision. Now, there, there's nothing magical and special about circumcision in and of itself. Its meaning is created by God within the covenant. The, the meaning of circumcision is directly wrapped up within. It's directly connected to the covenant. In fact, the practice of circumcision finds its beginning much earlier than the founding of the nation of Israel. Some uh, historians date the practice of circumcision back to Egypt as early as 2300 BC. Not only so, but the practice was fairly widespread prior to Genesis chapter 17. Along with ancient Egypt, the South Sea Islanders, Aztecs, Mayans, and others practiced circumcision even with ritual and ceremonial significance. So why is all of that important? That sort of historical footnote. 
Well, it helps us to see what, what the Lord is claiming here in Genesis chapter 17, that circumcision was never special and powerful on its own. Circumcision was meant to be a sign. Did you notice that in verse 11 in Genesis 17? It's a sign pointing to God and his covenant with his people. See, circumcision is not special. God is special. Circumcision in and of itself is not powerful. God is powerful. Circumcision was never the point. It was merely a sign. And God is the point. Remember, God is determined to strip away from you and from me anything and everything that we could possibly love and trust more than him. And for the Jewish reader here in Rome, they had begun to love and trust their precious circumcision, that mark that they took on in Genesis 17 more than God. So essentially, God is taking away circumcision. He's taking it away from them and he is helping them to see that the meaning that you have put onto this, I never told you to put onto it. The, the meaning and the story, even the spiritual and religious story you're telling yourself about this particular mark, I never told you that story. That's not the point is what God is saying. Now, only within the covenant, this covenant boundaries of God's grace does this have meaning. That's why Paul tells his Roman readers that their circumcision is valuable, but only if they obey the law, only if they maintain the fidelity of the covenant. Now, now what does that mean? What type of power, or rather what type of value does Paul have in mind? Well, the value that Paul must be speaking about here is its power, its ability to protect people from God's Wrath. That's the whole context here in Romans chapter 2. So he, that Paul is saying that circumcision will protect them from God's wrath, but only if they don't break the covenant. Because remember, Romans 2, 6, that God will render to each according to his work. God judges everyone, right? Those who are circumcised, those who are uncircumcised. Everyone is judged based on their obedience to the truth that God has revealed to them. Now, it may at first blush seem like Paul is repeating himself a lot in this chapter. Perhaps you feel like this entire book, this entire series is, is one long form repetitious practice here for a number of different weeks. But remember, in scripture, repetition is not evidence that God has forgotten. It's evidence that we will. When God repeats himself, he's, he's not forgetting that he already told us. He is repeating himself because we forget. God knows we forget and fail to obey, so he is a God who graciously repeats himself. In particular, church, my brother, my sister, moralism and religion are so deeply seated in our sinful hearts. Therefore, God is relentless in his desire to rid us of the trappings of believing that we are saved and that we will flourish through any other thing or by any other means or by any other way than him. God is determined to strip away from you and from me anything and everything that we could possibly love and trust more than him. God wants these Jews to be saved. He wants them to know the good life. He wants them to obey his will. He wants them to obey his word. And therefore, he, he graciously corrodes the foundation of the things they are relying upon that are not worthy of their worship and their love and their trust. Every idol they worship and that we worship other than God, even circumcision, will end up hurting us. A gift, even that he gave us and gave them as a mark to be his people. 
See, this, this, is what we, this is what we do with the gifts of God all too often, is that instead of glorifying him, thanking him, and being pointed back to him, every time we receive a gift and a blessing from him, we take that blessing, we can hoard it, and we can worship it, love it, trust it more than God, and God won't have it, and so he'll take it away. Look again at what Paul specifically says in Romans 2.25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Paul essentially, sort of translating back 2,000 years, Paul essentially just called all of these Jews Gentiles. He just essentially called all of them Gentiles, like part of the nations, not this special people. Why? Well, he's already made the case in Romans 2 that we're all lawbreakers, that we sin without the law. We sin with the law. We are all covenant breakers. So we might hear Paul say it this way, that because you break the law, your precious circumcision is worthless. The last vestige of their sort of ethnic and spiritual lens and grid by which they evaluated themselves and wanted the world to evaluate and see how special they were, Paul, and, and by as God's messenger, takes it away from them. And by essentially calling them Gentiles, Paul has, in effect, taken everything away from his Jewish readers, which they could possibly have found to to love and trust more than God. There's nothing left. Now, this may all seem incredibly harsh, right? They say, well, why is Paul being so mean, right? Maybe we aren't even pushing it on Paul because we're like, yo, he's writing for God. So why is God so harsh? Why is God so, so mean? After all, what's the harm in all of this, we might say? What's the harm in having a special religious experience or tradition or mark that makes us feel good about our faith in God? After all, it's a religious thing. It's a God thing. And therefore, how can it be a bad thing? What's wrong with singing that favorite song, which is doctrinally lazy? Or having that favorite ministry that that you want to replicate it in your adulthood that was so impactful for you back in the day in high school? Or believing that a verse means something it really doesn't mean, and you're unwilling to hear anyone tell you otherwise. See, these can make us feel good, right? In in a moment, doesn't God want us to feel good about ourselves and about him and about our faith? Why won't God give us the warm, fuzzy spiritual experiences, the religious sentimentalities, if they make us feel good? Well, first we have to understand Paul is not alone, and God is not saying anything new here in Romans chapter 2. Turn to Amos chapter 5 and buckle up. Amos chapter 5. Amos is uh, nearly at the end of the Old Testament, found in between Joel and Micah. Amos was a farmer and was a a prophet of God in the mid-7th century B.C., When he spoke and wrote, God's people enjoyed a kind of stability and progress and prosperity not unlike we experience today as American, United States Christians in the church. They they were comfortable and it led to extraordinary idol worship. And, And I want to go so far as to say this, church. The more comfort we experience culturally, the more more cultural power we enjoy, the more tempted we will be to worship and love and trust our idols. And so this is what's taking place in Amos. So we need to hear this because especially right now, moving in toward an election in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of remote learning, in the middle of a lot of angst, in the middle of a lot of emotions, in the middle of... still, albeit a lot of comforts, even in the middle of all of that, we will be prone to, we will be drawn toward our idols. 
And so we need to hear this collection of words that Amos has put together in hopes to wake up and to convict the people of God. Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will look, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Shekath, your king, and Kion. You star, your star God, your images that you made for yourselves. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Amos is speaking to a group of people who for some reason are really excited about the day of the Lord like way too into this idea that God is coming to judge everyone and set all things to rights. What Amos tells them, they're looking forward to this this day, not not only in Amos, but but remember, Paul is speaking about this day of the Lord in Romans chapter two. They are eager for it. They're longing for it. And Amos tells them, you shouldn't be excited. You should not be looking forward to this day. Like Paul's Jewish readers, Amos' audience believes they are protected from the wrath of God, but their ideology and their religious sentimentalism has actually made them incredibly vulnerable for the wrath of God in the day to come. Why? Why are they vulnerable? Why are Paul's readers vulnerable? And church, why are we vulnerable to the day of the Lord if we're wrapped up in such wonderful feasts and songs and things with these sort of spiritual veneers to them? Well, first, the first reason why we're vulnerable and why they were vulnerable is because God is holy. God is holy. I hope that we are seeing that the covenant that God has made with us as his people is not dependent upon our righteousness, but God's. And that's really good news. Therefore, his eternal holiness, his worth is, the, is, is evidenced by the fact that the covenant is sti- still exists. So, so if, if the covenant still exists, this is proving not our righteousness, but God's holiness. And when we speak about God's holiness, we're speaking about a few different things. Uh, theologian Sinclair Ferguson said it this way, that God's holiness means he is separated from sin. But holiness in God also means wholeness. God's holiness is his godness. It is his being God in all that it means for him to be God. To meet God in his holiness, therefore, is to be altogether overwhelmed by the discovery that he is God and not man. 
See, God is perfect as himself. God is complete within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. God is altogether different from us. That's the reason why we are vulnerable because he is holy and we are not. In other words, he's not really down with something because it makes you feel good. He, he's not down with something because you have used his name or you've quoted scripture or it rhymes. He's not down with that. He is down to surrender and worshipfulness and complete love and trust in him as the holy God. Secondly, the second reason why we're vulnerable is because idolatry kills us. No matter the form, no matter if it's spiritual or secular, no matter if it's religious or irreligious, there, there is no such thing as a harmless idol. There is no such thing as a harmless idol idol. Joy Davidman, who happens to be the wife or happened to be the wife of C.S. Lewis, was a writer from New York in the early 20th century. In fact, C.S. Lewis' book, perhaps some of you have read it, A Grief Observed, is his story of personal trauma of losing his wife, Joy, to cancer. And in her book on the Ten Commandments, Davidman Davidman said this about the lethal nature of idols. She writes, the housewife or rather the house devours the housewife. The office rots the executive with ulcers. The canned entertainments leave us incapable of entertaining ourselves. The real horror, she says, of idols is not merely that they give us nothing, but that they take away from us even that which we have. Circumcision or any sort of religious idol or any sort of religious sentimentalism may seem like a victimless crime. Our own religious sentiments or perspective, while that which don't square with the Bible, may seem like they don't hurt anybody and make us feel better about our faith. But that's because we fail to consider the first two beings that are assaulted by every idol, the holy God and the idol worshiper. The holy God and the idol worshiper. So because God's holy and because idolatry kills us, God is determined to strip away anything and everything that we could love and trust more than him. So, my brothers and my sisters, what do you love? What's got your heart? What has the Lord been bringing to mind this entire message. As we have been flipping through the pages of scripture, what has God's spirit been whispering to you? What do you love? It might be an earthly power wrapped up in this feeble age of this world. It might be a spiritual tradition which you find delightful but has no audience in heaven. What do you love? The unavoidable reality is that those false loves will be lost. They will be taken away. God will either give you over to that idol and let you enjoy the fullness of what they have to offer you, only to discover their eternal impotence. They won't love you back and they will not satisfy. They will not fulfill. They will not only not give you, they will always take from you. Or God will take it away from you. Either he'll give you over to it or he'll take it away from you so that it won't lead to your demise. There's also another way though. There's there's another way in the scriptures that is woven through this sort of thread of hope when we confess and admit and acknowledge that we love something or that we are tempted to love something more than God. Another way that the Lord has provided for the false loves and misguided trusts to be stripped away is this. 
you can lay them down willingly. You can lay them down willingly. You see, in Christ, we can abandon our idols, both secular and sacred. The language that Jesus uses to do this is deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. To deny yourself is to surrender to Jesus as Lord. Therefore, he determines your path. It is his will, his way, his word, and not yours. To pick up your cross is to put earthly evils to death. It's to not make excuses and go, well, this is something that that I can take that maybe others would be tempted by, but I can enjoy it. I can take it in. I can own this. I can do that, but not other people. I'm stronger than them. I can tame this idol. No, to the follower of Jesus, we pick up crosses and put all earthly evils to death. To follow him is to abandon everything else. We don't pick up other things and say, Jesus plus this, or Jesus, as long as I can keep this with me. In other words, Jesus, as long as I climb the ladder of my business, Jesus, as long as my bank accounts are full, Jesus, as long as my children are healthy, Jesus, as long as my political party is in power, Jesus, as long as you fill in that blank, you are not following him. Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. This is how we lay down our idols. We do all of this because Jesus is the only one who's worthy of our love and our trust. He is our greatest joy. And Paul summarizes this third way in Philippians chapter three, when he writes, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, one of our greatest issues, church, is we are unwilling to call rubbish. We are unwilling to call an idol. We are unwilling to say that something is evil and broken and dead and dying. We want to keep it around like a little pet we take care of. We live in close proximity with our idols and explain them away. Jesus says, no, stop it. It's killing you. We're not following Jesus when we keep around our idols, whatever they may be. When we follow Jesus, we aren't supposed to wait and see if God takes away our idols. We're supposed to lay them down. We're not supposed to wait and see how much he'll let us get, how much he'll let us trust the things of this world, how much he'll let us love the things of this world. He doesn't want you to love and trust them any more than him. Those are all gifts from him. Those are not God's. Isn't this how love works? And when we really think about it, this is how love works. For the sake of our beloved, we forsake all other loves. One of my concerns for us, my brothers and sisters, please hear me, is that we are unwilling to lay down every other false love, every other false and misguided trust to truly take up and surrender to Christ. See, and this affectionate abandonment is not individualistic. It's actually a community or communal project. See, it doesn't just harm me personally. It harms those with whom I'm in community. 
With this in mind, Paul writes the church in Colossae in Colossians chapter 3, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. See, the, the other reason false loves need to be laid down is not just for your sake and God's glory, but also for the sake of our community. Idolatry ravages relationships. Idolatry crushes community. You see, in Christ, all other loves must be renounced so that we can truly love each other rightly. See, the covenant is not just between me and Jesus. It's not just between you and Jesus but between us and God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. That's why in Colossians, Jesus is all in all. He is our true center. He is our true unifier. He is our true love. He is the only one who is worthy of our trust. The Jewish idolization of circumcision kept barriers, not just between them and God, but between them and other people. In fact, their church family. These are Jews sitting in the pews listening to, to someone read this letter from Paul. And there is a barrier between them and their Gentile brothers and sisters who are in the same church family. I wonder what kind of idols are keeping barriers between you and me and our brothers and sisters who are part of Church in the Square. That's what idols do. What was taking place with circumcision, our idols perform today. They divide us from God and they divide us from one another. But let, let's be honest, we, we don't lay down our idols willingly first. Our denying self, picking up our cross and following Jesus only comes after we realize that this is what Jesus has done for us. He loved us first. And we know his love because Jesus did for us what we are unwilling and unable to do, which is to renounce all false loves. Jesus renounces false loves by not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped. And he also does this by refusing the idols of power and, and idols of this world in the wilderness when offered them by Satan. He does this by becoming a man. He does this by going through the sorrows of this life. He does this by taking on our consequence for sin. He does this by dying in our place. He does this by raising to new life and sitting at the Father's right hand. Jesus denies all other love so that we might take up the one love which will actually love us back. Therefore, through the work of Christ, the new circumcision marks or mark takes place of the physical marking. A circumcision not of flesh, but of the heart. An idea that we'll take up next week in the preceding passage in verses 25 through 29. But here's the point. Sisters and brothers, God has determined to strip away from us anything and everything we could possibly love and trust more than him. Don't wait to see how much you can hold on to. Don't wait to see how much he will let you love and trust idols, but lay them down now. See, through the gospel, you can give up anything and everything and love Christ alone. Because Jesus gave up anything and everything, we can lose all that we possess in this life and gain Christ and be eternally spiritually rich. You see, in Christ, you never lose more than you gain. 
In Christ, you never lose more than you gain. And therefore, Paul could celebrate and explain it this way in Galatians 6. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So Heavenly Father, May we worship you just like that, as a new creation, made and remade, reborn in your image and your likeness for your kingdom purposes. May we renounce false loves. May we lay down misguided trusts that we might take up Christ. Help me in this, Father. Help me to confess my sin and know that you're faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And I pray that for my sisters and my brothers as well, that we would lay down false loves and love the one, the only one who loved us first and loves us back, our heavenly Father, the incarnate Son, and the indwelling Spirit, our God. Help us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.